please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2 on the outline that you have there or will have there. I have the text and a few points there before you. Now, Exodus chapter 2 covers 80 years of Moses' life. I don't know if you've ever thought of how old he was in his ministry, but he is presented here at his birth narrative, and then the text we're looking at ends with the birth of his son. And then just as he's going to meet God in the burning bush, we know that he's 80 years old. So he returns to lead the people of Israel out of bondage when he is 80. So that should give everybody here hope that there's plenty more to be done in your life. Um, this is, uh, think of all that happens in the rest of Exodus is from age 80 to 120. Um, so that gives you a little bit of perspective on Moses' life. So we're going to cover a lot of years. I was thinking of the parallel with um, Matthew, how we just jumped over 30 years of Jesus' life from his time as a baby or child, actually a toddler, to when he um, appears with John at age, you know, roughly age 30. And here we have a much bigger leap covered in the life of Moses. And there's much here for us to behold. Uh, there is ultimately culminating a renewal of the covenant with Abraham after some 400 years. Again, interesting, the parallels, as Providence would has, have it, that we're studying Matthew, and there's a 400-year silent period between Malachi and John the Baptist. Now we have 400 years, 400, 430 years of Israel in bondage, and now they're going to be relieved of that state of slavery through a deliverer. So it's about deliverance, it's about covenant renewal, it's about patience. All of these things we can find in this chapter 2 of Exodus uh, with so much happening. Here now as I read God's holy word. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews, Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, 
And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Sipporah. She gave birth to a son. He called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the richness therein. We thank you for this account that gives us so much information, so much backstory about the history of Israel, your preservation of the messianic seed, the many promises that you fulfill just in this episode, and the forecasting and foreshadowing that we gain and gather from this episode as it starts to unfold. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to appreciate what we read, understand what we read, grow in deeper love with you, have a greater sense of awe as a result of watching your preparation and your providence working in this story. I pray, Lord, that we would see very practically day to day how you, our sovereign God, care for us personally, and you have your agents in your places and in your time. Give us patience as we wait for your will to unfold, even in our own lives. I pray this through Christ. Amen. The primary storyline of the book of Exodus you can gather by its name. Now, it was named Exodus many centuries after the book was written. The Pentateuch was the, book, the books of Moses, is what they were called. And the early Jews called Exodus different things, sometimes by the first lines of the, of the book itself. But Exodus itself means out of, ex-adus, out of the way. So the main story that we read is how God brings a nation of two million people from slavery in Egypt out and delivers them from that slavery. Uh, that's the main story. So much unfolds. We learn so many things about God and his work and what he's intending to do. But that's the big picture of Exodus, hence the name that has lasted for so long to describe what happens in the book. Now, it's important for us to realize that we have very carefully uh, given for us a type, typology as it's called. Now, that can be overdone, where every time you see a story, you make it into four different meanings. Uh, We want to be careful about that. But where the Bible is obvious or another writer says, this is a picture of something else. It's true what's happening, but it's also, in history unfolding, 
to give us a larger lesson about something God is going to do or something greater that he's going to do. This foreshadows. So we use the words foreshadowing and foretelling and prophecy and type. Oftentimes, these all work together. And here we have one of the major types of the whole of the Bible. You have Israel serving as a type for God's people. Moses serving as a type of Christ. Uh, We saw this with Joseph a little bit. Now we see it again. Um, Exodus would become, after this event, one of the most often referred to events in Israel's history. Throughout the Old Testament, and even today, modern-day Jews remember when the Israelites were led out of captivity, out of slavery. They were delivered from Egypt. Because they were marked as an actual legitimate nation when they leave and are given the law. Because then they'll have land that's theirs, they'll have a law code, and they'll have the people to populate it, and they have to be recognized as a nation. Uh, This is what you have even referred to today, and you see in the Israeli conflict that's happening now, the references to their ancient ownership, uh, their occupying of the land for so many years. Well, this is the buildup to that occupation when they first would receive it around 1400 B.C. But we're not there yet. We're still moving to that point. A type is which you might say is a picture prophecy. Like Joseph, picturing something about the person of Christ. <clears throat> this episode that Exodus will record is a type of what God will do ultimately for his people. In the Old Testament, he often uses real people, real things, or real events to symbolize truths and point to spiritual realities, as Michael Barrett has noted in his commentary. <clears throat> so, with this episode, as we look at the passage together, It's both a fulfillment and a foreshadowing where God raises a Savior to bring his people from their bondage. Now, let's look at the deliverer being delivered himself. The first 10 verses depict for us the birth narrative for Moses, this great liberator, this great deliverer. Um, It highlights God's hand of guiding and protecting. You can see it in these verses. Even uh, Pharaoh's death order could not deter God's plan. Remember back to chapter 1, verse 22. Pharaoh commanded all his people. Remember the midwives wouldn't do the job for him and kill the babies? So he tells all the people, he makes a law. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you should throw them into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. It's a violent time for sure to be living in Egypt, especially as an Israelite. But we come to the passage, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. We know their names are Amram and Jochebed. We know this later on as the book unfolds. She conceived and bore a son, and he was fine, or a beautiful child. Um, He was a vivacious child. And she hid him three months. He was very healthy. And this would be important to try to hide this child. They'd have to be healthy and well, because it would be a, a sneaky endeavor to try to keep this baby quiet so that people wouldn't rat them out and let others know that they had a boy, that they weren't uh, revealing. It says in verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, which you can all imagine, it it wouldn't be too long before that baby would just be too loud and too difficult to hide. Uh, She devised a plan. She took uh, for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with vitamin and pitch, like a tarry substance. Uh, We've seen this in the Tower of Babylon and other episodes. It's a kind of material that's glue-like and waterproof and puts this around this basket and makes it. And she put the child in it and then placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. 
the one place you wouldn't look for a live child would be down by the Nile. Uh, it's, I don't know what she was thinking for sure would happen, um, but something like what unfolded, I'm sure, is what she hoped for. There would be some way to buy time and see if there's a way to preserve the child's life. Now, it's interesting with this basket that the word used to describe the basket, uh, the same root word is used several times in the Bible, but it always refers to one or two items, either Moses' basket, like we have here, or Noah's ark. Interesting that they're called the same, an ark. This basket was like an ark. A Noah's ark was a means of preserving humanity for the messianic seed to come. And here you have Moses' ark, as some like to call it, as a means of preserving Israel by way of preserving this deliverer. The deliverer is being delivered himself to do the work of deliverance. We don't know a whole lot uh, about how the details unfold, but the book of Hebrews gives us some insight to this period that I think is interesting. In Hebrews 11, verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So we know he's three months then. So three months of hiding. Can you imagine the the anxiety that that would present um, trying to keep their son alive in this situation? And then the bonding that would happen after three months only to put the baby in a basket hoping to some in some way to save his life, that someone who had the ability could take the baby and keep him alive. I'm sure he wasn't, she wasn't thinking that what unfolded would happen, that she would get the baby back. It's an amazing outflow of providence, but none of us are surprised by this, especially after having gone through Genesis. Verse 4, it says that her sister, who we know is named Miriam, which shows up later in the book, um, his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. You might know that Miriam um, is where Mary is derived from. That's why Mary is such a popular Jewish name. It comes from Miriam. It's a popular Italian name, too. I've got three Aunt Marys just on one side of my family. Of course, that's always for the Virgin Mary uh, in that tradition, but there are many Marys in the New Testament, and it's because there's such a high esteem for Miriam in the role she played in keeping Moses alive. She's also noted as a prophet later on, a prophetess later on in the book of Exodus. The daughter of Pharaoh, verse 5, comes down to bathe at the river. Now, did they know this was an area where this would happen? Perhaps. I wouldn't doubt it at all. There's definitely a a shrewdness here in Moses' mother. Uh, The Hebrew midwife showed a certain capacity to figure and work these things out. So maybe she, she took this gamble thinking that this might unfold like this. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and said to one of the servant women, go get that, go see what that is. And when they opened it, they saw the child. Behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. She recognized immediately. She took pity on him. Um, Now, maybe anyone would have had mercy, but I would suggest there's something different, and I think Moses' mother knew this, about if a woman would find this baby. A woman's love for a child that seems to come through here. And let's put it to you this way. I'm not going to bank anything exegetically on this or psychologically on this. I just know it by anecdote. This morning, Una and Nelson had their brand new baby, Isaac. And my reaction was awe and praise God. And I looked at the baby and thought how amazing that this is. And I'm thinking this big picture. My wife's reaction is, let me hold that baby. I want to kiss it. 
That's always what happens. When a guy and a girl see a baby, what is the difference? Look at it. It happens all the time at church every Sunday. You don't see the guys, unless it's their child, you don't see the guys lining up to grab people's babies and look at them and hug them and kiss them. There's just something different about a mother, a woman's maternal instinct. And Moses' mother knew if I could just get a woman who has the power to keep him alive, see this baby, he's going to live. And even Pharaoh's daughter sees the baby and takes pity. Because in her heart, she sees this human being and knows that he should not be sacrificed. He should not be thrown into the Nile. I think there's good reason for why Ruth Tisdale, Director of Advice and Aid Pregnancy Center, says the vast majority of mothers who see the sonogram do not carry through with an abortion. And this is the kind of thing you see unfolding. Verse 6, when she opened it, She saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him. Then this this rapidly unfolds in a way that's just, uh, it's most amazing for sure. Um, It's so brief in the text, but it's so profound in what it must have been like for the people involved. Um, From the pits of despair, putting your child in the Nile, uh, hoping that there's some just possible way that this baby could live, even though it's against all odds, now for it to unfold like this. Verse 7. Then uh, Miriam said to Pharaoh's daughter, she like pops out of, the, out of the cattails, and she says, hey, should I go call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? No discussion breaks out about this is a boy child. This can't be. How's this going to happen? And Pharaoh's daughter says immediately, she doesn't go, I better go ask what my dad thinks. She's got to work that too. There's lots of dynamics here. Yes, let's do that. Um, the baby's crying, and I can't nurse the baby. So yes, Find a, a Hebrew woman to nurse. And she's just acting very quickly and impulsively, no doubt, but under God's sovereign hand. Even our impulses, under God's sovereign hand. Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's daughter says, verse 9, take the child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. I'll even pay you for this. I'll pay you to take care of your baby. So Miriam takes the baby and brings it to his mother. And so his mother now receives back the child and gets paid to nurse the baby and to raise the baby to some degree. We don't know how old. Most scholars agree. It's not just from the time she, the baby was weaned uh, before Pharaoh's daughter took him back. He was probably a young child, uh, but not a two-year-old either, maybe 10 or 11, maybe 12. 12 was an age that was common um, where you would turn from a child into, uh, not manhood, but you would, char- you would be more into the age that would be common for the parenting interaction to be all the more pronounced and where it might be the time for him if this transition is going to happen, which it is, um, that Pharaoh's daughter would now receive him. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. It's interesting, uh, an Egyptian name that sounds like a, a Hebrew word. I drew him out of the water, drawn from the water. What a picture of God's deliverance of the deliverer. And let's give credit to the deliverers of the deliverer. First, it's the Hebrew midwives. They're first. Then it's Moses' mother. She's next. Then it's Moses' sister. Count her in. Then it's Pharaoh's daughter and Pharaoh's daughter's servant. Critical women in the history of redemption. Hero women in the history of redemption. Deliverers of the deliver. It's an incredible show of God's providence here unfolding once again uh, in the book of Exodus by Moses. God's agents are in God's places at God's time. 
I don't know how often you wonder or worry maybe about your children, your grandchildren, and you pray, Lord, put somebody in their life. They're out of my sight, out of my control. Put someone in their place, in their atmosphere that can properly influence them or encourage them. Isn't that one of your most common prayers uh, when your children get older? Um, it, it's probably true any time that they would find friends that would influence them in the right way. But when they're out of your household and there's just zero control left, um, you have a figment of an imagination of control earlier, but then it's really gone when they're out on their own. And I think our most common prayer is, Lord, bring people into our children's lives who will point them towards you and give them the capacity to point others to Christ who are someone else's kid that they're going to meet as adults now. Um, Make no mistake, God's agents are everywhere. Look at how this unfolds. All these heroes who help deliver the deliverer, uh, these are all by God's appointment. Now, let's look at what happens next in Moses' life as the deliverer is prepared, as it's said. Verse 11 to verse 22. Now, before we go there, I'm going to draw your attention just to the two places I can find um, that give us some insight about what happened from the time he went to Pharaoh's daughter's house to the time that um, he has this episode where he kills the Egyptian master. All right, so what we know is what Stephen said in the book of Acts to give us some depiction or some background about about Moses' preparation. It says in Acts 7, 20 through 22, at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He's kind of going through the history of Israel, so he gets to the point of Moses' birth. Repeats what it says in Exodus. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him, and here it is, and brought him up as her own son. And Moses, Stephen says, was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in words and deeds. So he was very learned. He was very well educated. Um, As educated as you could get. Now, interestingly, some scholars make the point he could have grown up quite a while under Hebrew tutelage with his mother. Maybe even if he was only seven or eight when he went to Pharaoh's daughter. But what if he was 12? So now he has a certain amount of understanding about the story of the Hebrews and who they are and who he is, part of that identity. Now he's in Pharaoh's house. He's dressed like an Egyptian, looks like them, walks like an Egyptian too, I'm sure. And there he is learning the ways of the Egyptians, the most learned people in all of the earth, the, the, the libraries they had, the languages they knew, the people they were in connection with, the study of the stars, um, everything you can imagine about academia would have been found in Egypt at that time. And he's raised in this. Um, so this is preparation for the deliverer, and it's the most unusual preparation for sure. His education at least prepared him to be one who was a lawgiver, who understood Egyptian law, Hammurabi's code and all these codes that the Egyptians knew and studied. He would know that as a background. And he could read and he could write well to be the chronicler that we are enjoying reading now, of course, by the Holy Spirit's ministry. But the Holy Spirit always uses the person's intellect and that person's capacities. That's why I know what Paul wrote, what John wrote, what Matthew wrote, and what Moses wrote. You know, one of the most telling reasons you know the critics don't give a fair reading to the first five books of the Bible, is it's so clearly written by the same author just when you read the the way it lays out. It's more from unbelief and how could this be true that this must not be from one author. That's what drives them, not the evidence of how it's written. Here is Moses, according to Stephen, in recollecting he is mighty in words and in deeds. Now, I don't want to get too into psychologizing, especially with Nathan here, 
But I will say, there's something about his identity that he struggles with from the get-go, which then eventually hurts his relationship with the Israelites too. It's always hard for Moses to know how he belongs and who he belongs to. Now, I think God uses this to make him wholly committed to his God's purposes, but it's still something we should appreciate that he endured. He's clearly conflicted about his identity. We know this because when we go to Hebrews 11, 24 through 27, listen to what the writer there says. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, how did that go over? He's 40 when he kills the Egyptian master. So there's some conflict going on there between Pharaoh's house, his identity as an Israelite. And it says in Hebrews that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter when he was grown up, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So in some fashion, by the time he's grown up an adult, we meet him in the next part I'll read um, in verse 11 and following in Exodus 2. He has been with the people of Israel in some way. They recognize him now as an Israelite, but he's been with the Egyptians. They know that. He wants to be counted with them, yet they don't really count him that way, it seems. That's the sense you get. But he chooses personally, rather, I want to be mistreated with them, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of being aligned with these people who are opposed to God. So you sense he has some understanding that he has a calling from God, yet it's not fully realized yet. And it's taking so long to get there. Here he is 40 already, and there's not clarity about it. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So he knows he's called to something by God. He sees it relates to his people, but he doesn't know the timetable, and this is part of the problem uh, in his own experience. Not in God's sovereign plan, but as far as how he experiences it. Now, I mention this because on a practical note, we all have goals and dreams and things we think the Lord's leading us to or would like to see come to pass. Uh, But we have to be patient to realize that maybe that's true, but the timing of it is wholly up to God. And it seldom goes at the pace we think it should go. Almost never does in many respects. Now, there are many things he gives us quickly and pours out blessings. We don't notice those as well. It's when we're waiting for things that it becomes more clear to us. This is sort of what unfolds here. Now, back to Exodus chapter 2. One day when Moses had grown up, he's in this kind of state of, of an identity crisis, if you will. He went out to his people and looked on their burdens He had the sense that I'm supposed to help somehow, but I don't know how. And he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And this is a severe word, beating. I mean, he was going to probably kill this Jewish person. So he checked out one way and looked at the other way, saw if anyone's around. And he went and he struck. And struck and beat had the same root words that are used there. The commentators say beating because it was an ongoing process that was in process, whereas he struck down the Egyptian. It didn't take him too many hits, and it was over. Whether he was trying to kill him or trying to stop him, the point is he fell dead. And then he hid his body in the sand. It's this impulse of Moses. We'll see it again. Which, by the way, we we have these flaws that God um, still, he'll use us, but we can always tell who the hero of the story is, and it's not Moses. Verse 13, "When when he went out the next day, he probably thought to himself, if anyone did see, they would keep it quiet because he's helping the Hebrews. He sees two Hebrews having a struggle. They're either physically fighting or close to it. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? So something had gone on, at least a shot had been given by one to the other. He answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Because he knew what happened. Did you 
mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? This is all Moses needed to hear to realize the word is out. And not only is the word out, they're not covering for me on this at all. They're turning on me. They don't see me as leading them. I'm supposed to be helping them. I tried to help them, and this is what they're going to turn me in. Surely this thing is known. Verse 14. And this attitude in Moses and this attitude with Moses will show up again as we go through Exodus. Then when Pharaoh heard of it, got back to Pharaoh, he sought to kill Moses. There was already a strain there, we know, because he did not want to be called Pharaoh's daughter. Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian that would have been north back towards Israel. And he sat down by a well. Here's that well theme again. We've seen it already in the lives of the patriarchs in their finding of wives. If you remember Isaac and Jacob, the well. I don't know what that would be compared to nowadays, uh, but somewhere you go where the ladies are and there's a chance you might meet one, and that's what happens here. But this is a much more wholesome version of what we probably have today. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew the water. And this is a terrible uh, unfolding event, but it gives Moses an opportunity uh, to really show some of that sense of justice he has. We know that intrinsically he is bent towards seeking justice. You saw that with the Egyptian um, who was beating the Hebrew, and now you see it again. Uh, these young ladies are there, and what they're doing is they're drawing water from the well, which is difficult work, it's hard work, um, and then they would pour with buckets into a trough and then water their flocks. So the flocks are anxious and ready, and they're taking, who knows, it could take hours to fill this thing enough. you can't, you got to get it fully filled because when the flocks come, they're going to come on it quick and drink it quick. You can't put a little and then have a few. They'll keep drinking it at the pace that you're filling it. So the ladies are filling it, and when they get it, about the time they get the thing filled, these shepherds who have their flocks come and run the ladies off and, and, feed the, and they're going to let their flocks drink the water that they just drew. Moses says, no way. You're not going to do this. And it doesn't say how, but Moses had to be a physically intimidating person um, in some fashion. He was uh, able to, in whatever it may be, deliver the ladies out of their hands, as they describe. He, dry, he drives them away. And so they can water the flocks, and they do so very quickly, and it's obvious that something has happened when they get home. It says in verse 18, when they came home to their father Ruel, who's later known as Jethro, a uh, couple names he has, which isn't unusual for Old Testament figures, he said, how is it that you come home so soon? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and water the flock. That, everything they just said there must have just struck him as so odd. How is this possible? Again, all of this is preparation for Moses and what he's going to do later. It's, he's 40 years old when this occurs. He then said to his daughters, well, where is this guy? Bring him here. Let's see him. Let's, let's give him dinner. Let's talk to this guy. And it fast forwards. We don't know what all happened, but it says that Moses was content to dwell with the man. This is much different than Jacob and Laban. It's really completely different. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and he marries her. That's what it means. And she gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, the bigger picture is the preparation of Moses. But there's something I don't want you to lose with the name that he gives his son, because I think it indicates something we should lay hold of or think more about. I've already indicated a bit he was struggling with his identity. Is a Hebrew who was raised as an Egyptian who's supposed to help the Hebrews, but the Hebrews aren't accepting him as a Hebrew. How is this to be the case? And he names his son, and oftentimes they'll, you, we've seen this already, they'll name their kids based on the experience they're feeling at the moment or they're going through. And that's what he does here, Gershom. I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. But which land is he talking about, do you think? 
Is he talking about just lamenting that he had been in Egypt all this time and he was an literally sojourner means alien. I'm an alien in a foreign land. Or is he talking about Midian now? Which one is he talking about? You know, many of you remember Jake Tassie. Uh, we grew up, Nathan and I grew up with Jake Tassie in Buffalo. His dad is Haitian, so he's not strictly speaking, speaking. He would never say he was African-American because he was from Haiti, and he moved to the United States in the early 60s. And so, and then he married a Caucasian woman, Jake's mom, and so Jake is biracial. We didn't care. None of us cared. But it was difficult for him, and I didn't even know this until even later, even as an adult, he shared some of this with me. And the reason why it was difficult for him is because where we lived, we did have an African-American population, and a lot of those uh, people would stay together. We were friendly across the board in our high school, but there was definitely a click. Um, several moved from Cleveland, from a rough area in Cleveland, to a rough area where we were. And so it was kind of, there was some racial tension in, among, among our school members. And there was Jake, who didn't know where he necessarily fit. They would do inner-city ministry with his dad, and they would make fun of him. Uh, for having a white mother and living in the suburbs. And then when he was in the suburbs, he would get made fun of by others uh, for not being white. I, again, I didn't really notice it because I never thought of him in that sense, in that way. It never really affected me. His dad was my soccer coach. We loved him. It just didn't matter to us. I lived right across the street from the government housing where a good number of my friends were African-American. I just didn't have the... I knew that the racism... Uh, that was in the area and such, and in the times, the early 80s especially. But later, as adults, there was a few times where he shared with us how difficult it was, even as he ministered in the inner city, to really ever feel like he fit anywhere. Um, he didn't feel trusted in the African-American community. He didn't feel accepted in the Caucasian community. And I think we should appreciate that some people deal with that kind of identity situation. I think that's the kind of thing Moses deals with his whole life. You know, who do I belong to? I'm Hebrew. I'm called by God to relieve the Hebrew. But I... Yeah, but you speak like an Egyptian. You have an accent like an Egyptian. Back to his naming of the son. He calls his name Gershom. It's like a sigh. He has a son and he sighs and he says, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. My life has been alien. And it's only going to get more challenging for him. There's no doubt about it. Now, here he is in the time of preparation that we know goes from the age of 40 to the age of 80. That's how long it takes before he meets God in the burning bush, which is coming. That brings us to the third and final point, just before he's ready. And I ask you, you know, are you in Midian now? That's a good application question, really. You have Moses spending 40 years. He knows he has a sense of what the calling of God is in his life, but the years keep coming on and he just doesn't understand when is God's will going to work itself out. Does anybody ever feel like that? But God uses such experiences to prepare us for what he has next. And we see in verse 23, it's a transition verse that will lead us into chapter 3. And this is where the covenant of God's grace, first to Abraham and then through Isaac and Jacob, it's renewed. 430 years later. I know it's a quick jump for us to go from Genesis to Exodus, but remember... The, the span of time here is much longer than the United States has even been around. That's the span we're talking about. Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. Reminds me of when Herod died. The king of Egypt died because all, all world rulers have this in common. They die. And the people of Israel groaned 
because of their slavery and cried out for help. They're crying out now for their misery. They're shrieking, as the words literally mean. Their cry, their shrieks for rescue from slavery came up to God as a prayer. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. There's a lot here. Let's not miss it. Uh, Alec Moitir, I was so thrilled to see he has a commentary on Genesis. You know from Isaiah, he's my, one of my favorite commentators. He said, the prayer of the people of God is the beginning of their deliverance in time and space, because prayer brings God into the situation. Yes, it's by God's ordaining hand, the timing of it, all of it's sovereign, but it's when those prayers go up, that's the indicator now that that God is in the situation. And it says several things in response to their cries in their despair. It says God heard. God heard. He heard their groanings. He heard their prayers. He gives heed to it. He pays attention to it. He's noticing it. He heard their groans. Um, It's in alignment now with the time being right, in the fullness of time, you might say. It says that he heard. It says God remembered. What did he remember? He remembered his covenant with Abraham. That is a loaded remembrance. Now we're talking about the promise he made to Abraham, that through Abraham, um, he would make a great nation, that Abraham would be a blessing, ultimately, to all the nations because of the seed of Abraham who would come would be the Messiah. And God remembered that covenant. And that's what he promised to the people who had now, even under duress, grown to be two million people strong, at least. So God remembers. When God remembers his covenant, things are going to start moving now. Things are going to start um, unfolding. God remembered, God saw. Now that means he's looking now intensely. He's analyzing the situation. He's seeing where everything is and fixing to do something Major. Now, again, I'm speaking anthropomorphically. That's how the passage is speaking as though this is having a real time. Yes, the sovereign plan of God lies behind all of this. But he's interacting now. That's the level Moses is writing at, describing how it's happening in real time. God looks upon it, analyzes it, sees it, and God knew. What does that mean? He knew. Did he? Knew. That word knew is a word of intimacy. He cares. And he is going to, he can't know. And do nothing. God will not know something and leave it alone. That's what Moses is preparing us for. God heard, remembered, saw, and knew. I love this now that we're in Exodus because Moses is writing it, and he's probably writing it in the wilderness some years after it happened, obviously, and he's recalling all of this as he pens this document for us by the Holy Spirit's guidance. And when those cries went up, God heard, God remembered, God saw and God knew things were going to now start happening. Things were going to unfold. And it's going to start to go pretty fast for Moses now. Now, as we think back at this covenant renewal, every time we come to the Lord's house and gather with the Lord's people, there is a sense in which we're renewing the covenant. Now, see what it means. Has God forgotten the covenant with us? No, we forget the covenant. But having this as a marker that we look forward to, at least on a weekly basis, at least corporately, um, we cry out to God. Think of the order of our worship. It's all devised to, to kind of picture some of this. Now, we're not coming 
from a state of slavery any longer. What we're doing, though, is recognizing what God has done, and we're calling him to remember his forgiveness he's given to us. And he wants us to do this. This is a model we'll see show up again later in Exodus. That's a timeless model. Uh, The stylings of it may be different among the people of God, but essentially, when the people of God, wherever they are, come together on the Lord's Day and call upon him, recite his promises, uh, say them in our prayers, read them in our passages, sing them in our songs, hear them preached. That's a renewal, that's a stirring, that's a calling out to God that stirs God to reinforce to us that he remembers, that he hears us, he sees us, and he knows us. We need that on a regular basis, at least weekly, at least weekly. It's covenant renewal. That's what, in, in our case, which they'll get too, we have the covenant meal that we come and gather around. That's, yes, it's symbolic of a greater meal to come, but it's also in real time going to give us the strength we need to be built up in our faith, to recognize that our salvation has been provided for by what this pictures. Uh, this, the renewal aspect of worship should not be underestimated. We should think about it, right? When you see covenant renewal on the top of that bulletin. Remember what that means and how God responds when we come to him that way. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful for uh, this book of Exodus. I thank you, O Lord, for just the excitement of, of it, to reading this annal that's been penned by your Holy Spirit through the author Moses. It comes to us these many years later, 3,500 years later, yet it just seems as fresh as can be to us. The underlying truths the realities about who you are sovereignly, even the call to us to recognize covenant renewal in our own day after the finished work of Christ, just the beauty of that, uh, the anticipation it fills us with when we think of having these opportunities, even like we have tonight, to sit under your word. I pray for my brothers and sisters. Give them patience. Maybe they are suffering in Midian a bit in their lives. Uh, they know your hands upon them and you've called them to something but they're wondering still what it might be in particular, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And we see Moses waited 40 years till the time he was 80 before you made more clear what it is he was called to. Give us patience to trust in you, knowing that you are perfect in your wisdom, in your, uh, the way you make things fall out, that we can trust you. But in the meantime, give us a growing devotion that in this time we would grow deeper in our faith, in our trust in you. I pray more readily this week that as things come up in our households and in our lives, um, that we would find a great bit of comfort knowing that your loving, sovereign hand is upon us and that you hear us, you remember your covenant, you see us, you look and you analyze it and you know us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're dismissed. Oh, if you have any questions, I I don't mind taking a few. If you have any questions since we're in a more informal setting, uh, Anyone have anything that's uh, just dying to ask? I know usually people know it's a bigger group, but...